With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 506. In episode 506, we broke down the 140 pages of notes focusing on the door-to-door leads by the West Memphis PD. This episode was packed full of information, and, and to be honest, I was completely shocked at the response we got. I was really concerned that people would find it uh, difficult to listen to because of just just the amount of just bullet points that we had to go through one after another. Uh, but I was pleasantly surprised, and it says, it says a lot about our listeners, Mike, about what they're looking for in the episode. You know, there there weren't a lot of uh, theatrics or anything like that in that episode. This was just nothing but facts, and the response has been overwhelmingly positive uh, about this episode. People seem to really, really like this one. Yeah, I was really happy with the finished product. Yeah, and, and actually, I will say hats off to you, Mike, as well as Shane Yoder, uh, because you know that, that episode, I think, ended up being 56 minutes, but the uh, the raw recording was well over an hour and a half. It was just, just a brutal job for me going over all those notes one at a time, and it was just the, the, the raw recording was just a, a mess. And so hats off to you for the work you did to, to bring that all together and space it out in a way where it was listenable. And then and then Shane Yoder with Put Them in the Song.com, our music and sound engineer, uh, did a great job of transitioning with music to try to make the whole thing listenable. And, and yeah, I was really happy with the finished product, happy with the response we got. So let's go ahead and get into this week's Friday follow-up. All right, Bob, I've got a bunch of questions here for you, but I know you said you want to do a little housekeeping before we got going. Yeah, I do just want to cover a couple of things before we get into all of your questions. To begin with, I want to let you all know that this is officially your last Friday follow-up episode of 2017. After this week, Mike and I are taking a two-week hiatus. We will still be in the office working. We're taking a couple of weeks to kind of get our bearings, get caught up, start putting together the episode for 2018. We have the holiday season coming up. Uh, so this will be your last Friday follow-up episode, and then two days from now on Sunday is going to be your final episode of 2017. Episode 507 will drop Sunday. We won't do that Friday follow-up until January after we take our two weeks off. So it gives you a lot of time to really think about the information we're going to give you, and this is another jam-packed episode coming up on Sunday. This one has to do with all the sightings 
that came up during the door-to-door canvassing. Uh, and there's a lot to think about. And so over these two weeks, there's there's I do have a couple of favors that we could ask from you guys. You know, we're now seven weeks into our coverage of the West Memphis Three case, and we're learning a lot. You know, this is a different process for us doing a, such a well-known case. And one of the things that's been kind of a challenge is kind of managing the social media discussions, which I'll get into here in just a minute, but also dealing with a bunch of listeners coming in that aren't familiar with the show but are familiar with the case. Uh, but so one thing that we want to do, we're already finding we've got a ton of new information, a lot of new leads that we're going to get to you as we move along throughout this season. Uh, and, and the more people that we have listening and contributing, the closer we're going to get to actually solving this thing once and for all. So there's a couple of ways that you can help that happen. Number one, just share this with your friends. I know a lot of you are involved in a lot of West Memphis 3 case discussion groups on social media, Facebook, Reddit, all over the place. So if you, if you can share what we're doing with these groups and just in anybody that you know that's interested in true crime, just share the show with people. We want to get more eyes on this. And it's not just investigators. And, and really, it's not even so much people that are familiar with the case. We want fresh new eyes. We want people that can listen to the evidence as it's presented and have a take on it that isn't biased from years of knowledge of the case. Uh, but, but that's how we get new insights. And that's also how we make new connections and find other witnesses. So one thing you do is share. Another thing you can do is to go onto iTunes and rate and review the show. That's a really simple process. It doesn't take very long. doesn't cost anything. And what it does is it helps us move up in the charts up to where we're more visible to people. You know, and none of this, n- none of this really is any advantage to us. You know, we have, as you guys hear, we, we sell out our ad space. We don't have any issue with that, but we just want to bring in more listeners so we have more eyes on the case and that's one thing that helps make us more visible is when you go onto itunes and give us that rate and review that'll bump us up and so the you know the the noteworthy and the featured podcasts we get into those categories and we pick up new people to help us crowdsource the investigation uh, and the last thing you can do uh, that's a big help for any of you that would like to contribute financially to the show, and this is usually about once a year we ever even talk about this because I'm I'm not a big fan of asking the audience for money, but and I'm and I'm not doing that now. But there's an opportunity for anybody that wants to contribute financially to the show. We do have a Patreon page. I don't mention it very often. Our Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash truthandjustice, or you can click to it through our website, which is truthandjusticepod.com. And what the Patreon does, it's a place where you can contribute to our efforts monthly, uh, and you can do as little as, I think, a dollar a month up to whatever you want. And what that is, is it's just funding that we get every month from all of you listeners that help us with the investigation. A big part of what we use that for is travel expenses for the show, for investigations, open records requests, things like that. You know, this show already, we've had uh, three trips to Arkansas. We've had a trip to New York, going to Texas later this month. So we have to travel around quite a bit. There's a lot of expense involved in that. So th- that's just a way that if you want to, you can contribute. If not, don't worry about it. Just just listening and participating is helping up. But that option is there for anybody that is interested in doing that. And lastly, the last bit of housekeeping that I want to talk about is the discussions on the fan pages. And this has gotten better over the last week or so since things got kind of a mess last week. Uh, but So I want to address something as far as how we engage each other on the Truth and Justice podcast fan page or on our Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page. And that's for everyone to understand. And, and again, we have new listeners that aren't familiar with the show but are familiar with the case. And, and so we're learning as we go. But the, the big thing that I want to make clear to everyone is that 
these places, these discussion boards, these Facebook pages are a positive thing. What they've always been is a place for us all to come together and work together to crowdsource these investigations to help solve the case. And and they have kind of become, you know, I've, I've, I've been going through and the admins of the podcast fan page have been going through and starting to, to warn people and remove people. But what we're trying to avoid is drama and negativity. And because what's been happening is, and I know a lot of you listening are, are in this group, because a lot of you have told me you are, that are just starting to check out because, you know, they want to go and inv- get involved in the discussion. And, and these, these snipers are throwing all kinds of, of documents at them and jumping way ahead of where we're at. Uh, and things get ugly and it's getting very argumentative. So I want to let you know we've, I've had a discussion with all of the admins on the podcast fan page. And it, our goal is to keep that page positive and friendly and inviting so people can participate. We need people to participate in these discussions. I don't care if you have an opposing viewpoint from anyone. I mean, and I encourage that. That's how we we move forward. That's how we make new leaps and bounds in an investigation is by hearing out both sides and seeing the validity and credibility of both sides of an argument. But we need to keep that civil. We need to keep it friendly. I'm going to ask you again not to jump ahead of where we're at in the podcast. For those of you that do want to move ahead and have a lot of knowledge of the case and want to really debate, I would suggest that we start or that you start, someone take the lead and start a second discussion page for our coverage of this case and make that a discussion page where people know going in that there's going to be a lot of back and forth. It's going to be way ahead of the podcast. and You can have these discussions and discuss the episodes. And I will happily, if someone does that and invites me to it, I'll be happy to get into that group and join the discussion. I like being a part of those discussions, but I don't want that to happen on the main page because it's deterring people. People are checking out and, and they're just leaving the page and and that's that's critical to us that we keep as many people as possible engaged in this investigation. And so when we're running people out of the page, that's counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Truth and justice has always been a positive thing. It's always been about many, many people from all over the world, all putting our heads together and contributing whatever resource we have, whatever skill set we have to work together for a greater good. And and we're gonna we are there's been a lot of discussion on how to handle this, uh, but but my my decision, uh, which the admins have asked me for advice as far on the fan page, and is we will keep that page the way it always has been, which is a positive place, drama free, where we can work forward together. So again, if you're interested in a more in depth analysis and discussion, and you'd like me to participate into it, or if you don't, make another fan page. Invite people, let me know. I'll talk about it on the show, direct people where to go, and we can move on from there. And I'll be happy to participate in that. And looking at my notes here, I think that's the last thing I had for housekeeping. Sorry to eat up the first several minutes of the, the podcast with that, but I wanted to address all that before we get into our two-week break and we move on to the next year. Uh, so, Mike, I know we've got we've got three sponsors today. Let's take a quick break for the first one, and then we'll get right into your questions that you have for me from the listeners. Sounds like a plan. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Bethany has two questions. Do we know any more information about Michael Moore's father, Todd, the night of the murders? Not a whole lot. We're going to get into Todd Moore later on as we move along here. I've been trying to do some more digging on him, and I found a few things, but uh, one thing that we do know is that he was indeed, and I don't remember if we've mentioned this on the, the episode or not, but uh, Todd Moore was indeed one of Michael's scout leaders, uh, along with a guy named Ed Lucas. Uh, the two of them uh, were the leaders of the scout troop. Other than that, you know, we know he was a truck driver. Uh, he says that he was uh, driving a truck that night. There's there's not a lot of available documentation on Todd Moore. There's like one time when Gary Gitchell interviewed him, and that was just about uh, a badge that was should have been on Michael uh, when he was found, a little like pretend sheriff's badge, a dude wearing his Cub Scout uniform, uh, just a couple of lines. And then um, Detective Durham also interviewed him, but he was interviewing all the fathers about where they were at, and it just says that, he was uh, driving truck that night and didn't come home till five in the morning. So from the official records, that's all we have. Uh, we're still in the process of digging deeper to find anything more about Mr. Moore. Uh, I have, I believe, found a good phone number for him. I have not reached out yet. And a lot of these, uh, the families, there's a lot of people that I want to reach out and talk to as witnesses, and we will. But coming up on the holiday season, I'm just, I'm not doing that um, until we move past the holidays. If by any miracle any of these these parents aren't thinking about the the loss of their eight year old son, uh, the last thing I want to do is bring it up right now. And our next question is: Since Bob's in contact with John Mark Byers, does he know of any other guy wanting to adopt Christopher? No, I don't. Other than that one note, and again, I refer back to what I just said about Todd Moore. Uh, I'm sure I will have more conversations with Mark Byers, but I'm just I'm not going to do it right now. I'm not going to bring up all these wounds right now, right before the holidays. Okay, and Paige wants to know why so many people interviewed say that cults and Satanists are in the Robin Hood woods. Was there reason to believe this? So this all, and, and I know it seems like almost an overused term now, but uh, the whole Satanic panic, which really started in the 80s and worked its way into the early 90s. For those of you that didn't experience this, that, that weren't, you know, I, I was a teenager back then, you know, so, and I was a, you know, when it was kind of starting, I was a young child. And it was just such a strange phenomenon. I can tell you from in rural Michigan, like I said, I, I think I mentioned on a previous episode, I had a friend who had some woods in like a pond behind where they lived, and we weren't able to go back there. His mother would literally tell us there's there's Satan worshipers back there. And you would hear that all the time. And the reality of it is it was hype that fed into itself. I mean, if you actually look at crime statistics and actually look into um, satanic cult murders, there were very few. It's it's not something that actually happened very often. And what I what I mean when I say it fit into itself is there's all this panic that there's Satanist everywhere, right? And it was a time, especially in the Midwest, uh, and especially in the Bible Belt down south, where you know anything that that wasn't Christian was Satanism. 
you know, so if, if you were Hindu, you were probably a Satanist, you know, if you were anything. But the reality of it is, like I said, there, there wasn't a lot of it. And then, and, and this is my opinion based on a lot of reading about it and studying about it. But what, what happened is it fed into itself. So when you had kids that were maybe different from what people considered to be the norm, the different kids in school, the the, the ones that didn't have a lot of friends, uh, maybe that were, were a bit depressed, had, you know, social issues. It's almost like they attached to this in a way to kind of give them a place. And I saw that with kids that I went to school with, that all of a sudden they, you know, they became, you know, were, were devil worshipers and, you know, we, we do sacrifices to Satan. And there was a lot of talk about that. None of it was really happening. But then these groups of kids would would kind of form together and become, you know, what, what we now know is like goth or emo. It was that was like the thing back then. Uh, and, and it was un, not uncommon for these kids that never had any control, any popularity, uh, to just really felt like they had no control of their lives that they would bind together. And then they would like to throw that in people's faces, uh, that, you know, we're Satanists, we worship the devil. We say, and they would just say all kinds of crazy stuff. So then you have all these kids that are now claiming to be devil worshipers and Satan worshipers and dressing in black. And they'd like to be in their faith. They'll draw pentagrams and, you know, markers and pens on their hands and things like that. And on their and their folders at school, so th- so then that like fed back into the panic where then other teachers and parents and other kids, you know, the, the kids that were raised to be the quote, you know, good Christian boys and girls, say, you know, so and so, you know, Billy at school is a devil worshiper, and then it, and it starts to build these rumors up, and then it's like I said, it just snowballed on itself to where then the parents started getting paranoid about satanic cults, and you'd go, there were woods that I'd go into where you'd see, you know, pentagrams drawn on things. In my opinion, it was a lot of it was all a lot of show. It was just a, a kind of a self fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. If, you, like I said, if you look at the crime statistics of how many actual satanic ritual killings there were in the United States in the last thirty years, forty years, that number is very, very small. Uh, for the most part, it was exactly that. It was satanic panic. Now, regarding the Robin Hood Woods and people's belief that there was a satanic cult back there. Uh, I think it's a lot of what I just talked about. It was a combination of of hysteria and panic over it. Uh, it's a very, very Christian Bible Belt area of the country. And then you had the kids that were feeding into that that were, in fact, we have sightings of people that said they, they would wear hoods and go back there and draw pentagrams and things like that to do their satanic rituals or whatever they were. So I, I think that's why you got so much of that because I think that there were actually kids going into the woods dressed in a certain way and and touting and telling people, literally telling people that they were devil worshipers and they were doing their rituals back in the woods. Whether they actually were or not any actual rituals, uh, I couldn't tell you um, other than this one triple homicide uh, that was coined to be a satanic ritual or an occult killing. I don't know that there's ever been anything in, reported in that area that actually happened other than a bunch of hysteria about Satan worshiping. Okay, and Candace wants to know about the question about Vietnam vets on the door-to-door questionnaire. Can you explain the origin of that? Yeah, so one of the early theories in the case was, because uh, going back to what we just talked about, the whole satanic occult killing, Gary Gitchell, the lead inspector, uh, chief inspector that was the lead investigator in this case, early in the investigation, uh, was asked about satanic occult ritual killings, and he said that he didn't think so. He's, you know, he kind of gave the whole, it's, you know, anything's possible, it could have been, uh, but just there doesn't seem to be evidence to indicate that, which he was right. 
but another early theory that was believed, I guess I would say, more by Gitchell than the whole occult killing thing in the early door-to-door stages when you look at those questions was that the way the boys were tied was reminiscent of the way uh, soldiers in Vietnam, uh, when they were captured and killed, would be bound, which was, you know, essentially hogtied, hide with their, tied with their wrists bound to their ankles behind their back. Uh, somebody, and I don't know the exact origin off the top of my head, but um, one of the investigators, some of the investigators thought early on that this could be a Vietnam veteran because the way the boys were bound was, like I said, reminiscent of the way soldiers were bound or prisoners were bound back in Vietnam. Now, that would be the way the Vietnamese enemy bound American soldiers, right? Yeah, exactly right. So it gets a little strange there. Um, I guess it would be, you know, that they, they had seen it or witnessed it, you know, a vet and maybe they imitated it. I don't know. But yeah, you're exactly right. That was not something the American soldiers were doing to the Vietnamese. It was the other way around. All right, and Cynthia doesn't see the significance of the gunshots mentioned in the notes, since the boys didn't have any gunshot wounds. What are your thoughts here, Bob? I, I believe that there were gunshots. You know, originally we have John Mark Byers saying that he heard a gunshot. I thought it was a gunshot. Maybe it was a couple of gunshots. And, and Ryan Clark, uh, Christopher Byers' brother, uh, said that he heard shots. Uh, Mark or attributed that to being uh, car backfiring. But then we go, oh, but they were over further east down by Goodwin, uh, the northeast area, kind of right by the entrance to the Robin Hood Woods, which are the woods south of the bayou. And, and all these reports of gunshots all come from Mayfair, which is on the west side over by the Pipe Bridge, west of West Macaulay Street. But consistent, you don't, you don't have five, six, seven people consistently saying, I heard four to five gunshots between 1030 and 11 p.m. There were gun, and that's not a car backfire. There probably were gunshots. But this this isn't an isolated incident. I mean, it was it was this was the, the most horrific case I think still in Arkansas history. But there was crime in West Memphis, and and there there may have been several gunshots that night. They were completely unrelated. But remember, also these gunshots occurred late at night, ten thirty, eleven o'clock. I mean, this is hours into the search efforts. There's parents everywhere and residents everywhere looking through the woods, looking for the boys. So I, they could just be completely unrelated. They certainly were not. There was no gunshot wounds on the boys. We know that for certain. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm with you. I, I don't quite understand the significance. I mean, but it's something that, you know, we have to remember. You know, it's one of those things you put a pin in and maybe later down the road we'll get some evidence that will make those gunshots make sense. Okay, and Joy writes, do we know why West Memphis PD didn't conduct door-to-door questioning near Stevie Branch's house? In my opinion, it was just blatant incompetence. And I, and I hate to be that harsh because I, I, I do know that, you know, the West Memphis Police Department, it were, they've never experienced anything like this. They were doing their best, but good grief. I guess it goes back to a narrow-sighted approach to the investigation and not doing what more experienced investigators do, which is really focus heavily on victimology. You know, there was, as, as, as anyone that's, that studies criminal behavior will tell you, any time a homicide occurs, in any case, there's always a particular victim or set of victims was chosen at a particular time in a particular place for a particular reason. And that's what criminal profiling is all about. And that's why you study victimology so much, because if you can understand, try to understand why were these three boys chosen and, and, and what were their risk factors? How were they, who were they exposed to? What was their risk? That can sometimes be like putting a mirror back up to the offender or offenders. 
And I think that you just had a very inexperienced police department as far as dealing with this type of crime. And to their defense, that would be 99% of any police departments in the United States in 1993. But yeah, there was there was no focus on victimology. You can see that going back to the question about Todd Moore. There's two sentences about one of the parents of the victims in there. There's almost nothing from Dana Moore. There's very little from Pam Hobbs. There's absolutely nothing from Terry Hobbs at all, never spoken to. John Mark Byers is the only one that had, there's a lot of information on. And and that was that was mostly due to the fact that he was was pushing the police to figure this out and volunteering to come down and talk. Um, and, and I think at some point the the West Memphis Police Department even thought maybe he's a suspect and questioned him as such, uh, but never really with any validity to it or any or any credibility or weight to it. And, and so why didn't they go to the south end of the neighborhood? It's just, there's no other answer other than they just they just messed up. You know, they were they were focusing in on where the boys were seen a lot. So so it was more about trying to find somebody that saw what happened. Uh, and it was it was much less about uh, studying victimology or anything like that. And, the, you know, they blew it. Who knows how many people down on the south end of the neighborhood might have more information. You know, we have the, which we're going to get into a little bit this week, but the, the one statement from Jamie Clark Ballard and her sister and her mother who all said they saw the boys that night. Uh, and the thing is, like, yeah, well, all the other witness statements say they were north of the neighborhood. I said, well, nobody else down there was asked. And, and that's something we may never know without going back through property records, figuring out who owned those houses. Some of them were rentals and seeing if anybody else saw anything. But if the police had gone down there and canvassed, there might have been 20 people that saw the boys in that neighborhood. Or there might have been 20 people that said, I was outside and they weren't in that neighborhood. But instead, they never even went down and checked. Uh, it's just complete incompetence. It shows their focus uh, was not at all on victimology. Uh, they were just, I think the initial thought was, we're going to stumble into the answer to this. You know, if we ask enough people between where the Moors and the buyers lived in the crime scene, we know the boys were riding their bikes around there. Somebody's going to tell us, oh yeah, I saw them go into the woods with this person or these people. And unfortunately that didn't happen. Uh, and then they started grasping at straws after that. While we're on the subject of victimology, Kim wants to know more. What would the boys be running from that they wouldn't have just gone to an adult for help for? Why would they think safety lay in the woods, or were they doing something else? I don't, I don't think we have the answers to any of that yet, but we can make some speculation here. So we have the statement. We know that Bobby Posey told police that Chris came to him and said he was running away from home. We know that John Mark Byers spanked him that day, that he was in trouble. So these aren't grown men you know, calculating an escape plan. It's it's an eight-year-old boy who got spanked and was mad and said he wanted to run away. Okay, and we, we don't know much about what was going on with uh, with the other two, with Stevie or Michael, because, of course, the police didn't ever talk to their families much to find out what was going on. The only reason that I can think of at this point uh, as to why if the boys were, in fact, running away from something, that they they wouldn't just go to an adult is that it was probably an adult authority figure they were running away from, which is consistent with Christopher Byers saying he was running away from home from his dad, John Mark Byers. Now, why they didn't go to back to the Moore's house or go back to Stevie Branch's houses, again, we don't know. Uh, sounds like, based on Jamie Clark Ballard's statement, maybe they did at some point go down to uh, Stevie's house uh, where Terry Hobbs was there, but that hasn't been validated yet. So I, I don't know. As far as why to go to the woods, it's just an eight-year-old mindset. You know, you just, you get in trouble or you're scared and you just run. You just run away. And it doesn't matter where you're going, you just go away. And if you look at a, a, a map of the area, 
if you're just looking to hide, and, and again, they're not thinking long-term down the road. They're just looking to get away from whatever they're afraid of or they're upset with right now. And if you look for a place to be secluded and hide, you got two options. You have the Robin Hood woods south of the bayou and the woods behind the Blue Beacon where Turtle Hill is north of the bayou. Neither of them are a lot of space, but they're both secluded. Now, the the Robin Hood woods south of the bayou uh, is where people are all the time. It's an area frequented by both adults and kids. There's bike trails. There's ATV trails. Uh, we know for a fact there's witnesses of other people being in the woods, in those Robin Hood woods that day. Uh, John Mark Byers said that he's rode three-wheelers back there with the kids. Uh, so the the woods north of the bayou where they would cross the pipe bridge, where they were found, is is a much more secluded area. Uh, it's an area some of the parents said they didn't even know were there, never paid any attention to it. So I think it's just, let's get away. I don't know what the what the reason for it was or you know why they chose the woods, but it's if they were just trying to. I believe my personal opinion is that they were trying to get away from something, and this and that could mean you know remember we're talking eight year olds, so this doesn't have to be something life threatening. It could be I miss supper, and if I go home, I'm gonna get a whooping, and so I'm 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 running away. I'm gonna hide. You know we we know that Stevie Branch's mom Pam Hobbs was at work until nine o'clock. You know it could have been as simple as I'm gonna hide out until my mom gets home. You know, because sometimes the the dad or the mom, one or the other, is more of the disciplinarian, uh, and the other is more of the you know the 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 one that's not going to give the spankings and might protect the kid. Um, could have been as simple as that. Who knows? But um, it's definitely something we need to focus in more on when we get into further investigation after the break. All right, Bob, you were mentioning different locations like Robin Hood Woods and stuff like that, and there was some discussion on the fan page. I think started by Paul Day. So can we talk about where some of these locations were at, examples like Devil's Den and Robin Hood Woods? Yeah, so this has been a, a subject that's been highly, highly debated over years. And a lot of people haven't put a lot of weight into it like it was real important. But there's a lot of controversy about where these locations were. For example, the Devil's Den is a big one that, that people talk about. So I believe it was when in one of the documentaries, I think it was in West of Memphis, where it might have been Paradise Lost, where they said that the location where the boys were found was an area known as the Devil's Den. Bum, bum, bum. But that was actually completely inaccurate. The area known as the Devil's Den, according to the kids that I've talked to that were from the area and played back there back then, and we'll hear from some of these people later on, uh, the Devil's Den was nowhere near where the boys were found. So if you're looking at a map and you go up 14th Street where it dead ends into Goodwin, there's a dead end there, and that's where there are trails that go back into the Robin Hood Woods. Which again, a lot of even the parents believe the boys were found in the Robin Hood Woods north of the pipeline. That's not the Robin Hood Woods. Even John Mark Byers, Mike, if you remember when we were talking to him uh, and originally asking him where places were, he's like, no, 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 that was that's Robin Hood up there on the other side of the pipe. Yeah, but that's that's not accurate. It's and so I think a lot of the confusion comes in is the kids named these places. Right. Right. This isn't you know on a, on a map that the the city of West Memphis didn't name those woods Robin Hood Woods. Some kids called them Robin Hood. And so when they're relaying that information back to their parents, you know, parents assume where things are at, but it's the kids that actually know where things were. So the Devil's Den is is in that dead end of 14th and Goodwin, and it's, it's not far in there. And, and the way it was described to me by a few people that were, again, kids back then, was there was just like a little hollowed out area, like a depression um, that almost made like a bowl in there with, with like weeds around it where you could go into, and it was almost like a little fort or hideout in there. And that's what they called the Devil's Den. 
quite a ways away from where the bodies were actually found. Now, Turtle Hill was consistent. That was um, the area very close to where the boys were found. It was a hill in the woods behind the Blue Beacon. Um, but but Robin Hood Woods were and, and so and, and why this is significant because when you're reading statements, when we get into the nitty gritty of this later on, uh, and you have witnesses saying that yeah, I used to play in Robin Hood all the time. Well, a lot of people think that means they played where the boys were found, but they're talking about the area south of the bayou, and sometimes they're confused. So you, so when you start reading statements as we're moving forward, it's just important to note and understand that there's a lot of confusion there. When somebody says, I played in Robin Hood, likely they mean south of the bayou. When they say the Devil's Den, they do mean south of the bayou. If they say Turtle Hill, they're north of the, of the bayou. And sometimes they don't specify, and, and we make leaps and assume. But the area that was played in the most by the kids, it's not that the kids didn't sometimes go over the pipe. We know for a fact that Chris's brother Ryan did with some friends. They used to go back there and catch snapping turtles. But they weren't frequented often as much as the Robin Hood area, which was the bigger stretch of woods south of the bayou. Um, so that that was, we we talked about that quite a bit. I think Paul even found some kind of, of data online that did name the Devil's Den and point out where it was at, which it was, again, south of the bayou towards the east side of Robin Hood Woods. Okay, Pablo asks, do the police go by the house that was just yards away from where the bodies were found? Oh, shoot. I, I promised Pablo that I was going to check on that before the Friday follow-up. As you know, we were we were pretty swamped this week, and I didn't get to it. So, Pablo, Mike, make sure you make a note to ask me that again in the next follow-up, and also a note to remind me to look it up. Because the issue is, Pablo, is when I was going through the door-to-door notes, I don't know the exact address of that house, so I don't know if it was actually knocked on. I assume that it was. I assume the address is going to be... See, it's right on the corner of, of WeCat and West Macaulay. So I don't know which address it's going to be, but they were in that area all over. I assume that they did knock on that door and talk to him, but I wanted to be able to give you uh, confirmed one way or another, which we can do by the door-to-door notes if we have the exact address, which I forgot to do before today when we're recording. So I'll get to that either on the fan page or um, on your post there, Pablo, or in our next follow-up, I'll bring that back up, or Mike will. Okay, Melissa says, Neighbors mentioned a boy and girl looking for the Wren boys after the murders. The boy had a strange tattoo and scratches on his chest. Is this also quote King David? I don't know. You know, we 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 could make some leaps there and assume, but I I don't know for certain. I know that uh, it was noted in a police report that what the officer that was originally knocking on the door of David Beasley, King David, thought might be he was hiding something on his arm. They said that it was a sunburn from driving. I don't remember anything. Do you remember anything about scratches on his chest? We went through so many different people in the last week that. No, I know. I I don't think so. We'll get back to you on that, um, but I no, I, I mean, it could have been, who knows, but the problem is, I feel like, I almost feel like the people doing the door-to-door canvassing were just so fed up with doing the door-to-door canvassing that the notes just got real short, you know, for example, the vacant house. So you're investigating a triple homicide of three eight-year-old boys that were very close to where this house was at, right, where their bodies were found yeah. and where they were last seen, and... They talk to the owner and it says, yes, the house was egged. We know the boys who did it. They're always up to mischief. So we know that there's these, quote, boys who were up to mischief in the area where Stevie, Michael, and Chris were killed. In the notes, they don't write the name. Like, So if I'm doing door-to-door canvassing and you're that guy and you tell me that, I'm going to say, okay, what were these boys' names? Where do they live? I want to talk to them. If for no other reason, because they might have seen something. But they just write, okay, it's almost like check it off the box. Check. 
I talked to this guy yeah. without actually following up on it, at least that we're aware so far. And uh, on that note, I have uh, sent off the open records request for the police reports for the egged house. Uh, I would expect that back next week, so hopefully very soon we'll have a little more information on that. All right, and Lisa wants to know where was the location of James Lance's house, or the egged house? Okay, so if you're looking at the map, uh, West Macaulay Street runs straight north, and it dead ends just about 60 feet away from the pipe bridge where the boys would cross and where their bodies were found on the other side. Um, so as you're going up, if you're going on West Macaulay Street, heading away from the pipe bridge, right there at the corner is Wecat Street, and then maybe 100 feet away from that or less is Little Elton Drive, and then about another 100 feet or less from that is Ferguson, and then less than 100 feet from there is Roy Pugh Drive. So you're looking at maybe 100 to 150 yards from the pipe bridge, but it's on that West Macaulay Street that drives straight up and dead ends where the pipe bridge is at. It runs to the right or east off of West Macaulay. It's north of Barton Street. Uh, it's just it's just a short little tiny stretch of road, and it's very close to the crime scene. Uh, the the boys, if they took West Macaulay up to that pipe bridge, would have driven right, rode their bikes right past this house because uh, I believe it was right there, almost on the corner of Roy Pugh and West Macaulay. Okay, and Lisa also wants to know: Do we know what time the call came in for the egg house? Yeah, it came in at exactly nine p.m. Uh, then the dispatch went out at nine o one p.m. If I remember correctly. Uh, and then Regina Meek got on scene a couple minutes after that. So Regina Meek was had just cleared the Bojangles incident, or was still at Bojangles when this call came in. But yeah, it was it was exactly 9 p.m. And her last point here is, from the sheer amount of weird or unusual sightings that people reported in the neighborhood, can we clarify what type of neighborhood this was? Lower middle class, low income area, more of a working middle class? What do you think? I would say mm, that's tough because I know what it is now. I would say it was it was middle class to lower middle class or, you know, I don't know, working middle class is probably a good way to put it. Um, these are are mostly, I think I'd say they're like three bedroom, two to three bedroom, small ranch, basic houses. Uh, so I, I would say I would say lower working middle class neighborhood. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll get back to it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Joseph asks, could the note about the vacant house be an error where the detective might have meant vacant at his attempt at speaking to somebody there rather than the home actually being vacant? It's possible, but the same officer in some of his other notes wrote no information or no one home uh, or no answer, uh, whereas this one he specifically wrote vacant. So it seems to me that he thought the house was actually vacant. All right, listener Jennifer brings up the white van mentioned in the notes. Did anyone related to the boys have one? No, as far as I know, nobody related to any of the victims owned a white van. Okay, and then Gretchen writes, the truck driver that saw a man with blood all over him. Could this man have been the man from Bojangles? Was it anywhere near the Bojangles restaurant? Well, I'm not sure exactly where Schneider Trucking was in 1993. Currently, 
their address is 800 College Boulevard in West Memphis, which is way over on the west side of town, nowhere near the crime scene, nowhere near Bojangles. So if it was in that same place, uh, that far away, that's, I, I would say, probably not Mr. Bojangles, man, because it, it's a long ways away from the restaurant or the crime scene. Okay, Jennifer asks, why was the whole investigation handled by the West Memphis Police Department and not ever refer to the FBI? Well, I, a lot of cases like this come down to the ego of the local law enforcement. You know, they don't want to admit they don't have the resources to do it. I, I did read in a newspaper article where Gary Gitchell had said that uh, he was asked just that, like, why don't you take on the state police to help you out or the FBI? And Gitchell said that they they had enough resources that I don't remember. If he, I think he said 15 or a dozen officers, detectives that he had working on the case and basically said he had plenty of people available to do the work so they didn't need help from anyone else although they did employ the resources from the fbi to an extent you know they got that questionnaire from the fbi so they had been in contact with them and and i think it was that same article that gitchell had said that they were waiting on a profile from the fbi uh, i found another article where someone a woman they were talking to in the article uh, referenced the quote profile that was given on in the newspaper so there was some kind of profile, but I don't have any record of the FBI actually delivering a profile until John Douglas did years later. So I don't know if that's a profile they worked up on their own or if the FBI assisted them with it. But uh, b based on what Gitchell said to the media, they had plenty of resources to take care of it on their own. And so they didn't feel they needed the help from the state police or the FBI. And again, my experiences have been that typically that is... Uh, a local law enforcement agency that doesn't want to admit that they're incapable of handling something like this, and so they want to keep it all in-house. All right, and Kara asks, would it be possible to have the demographics of the area for those of us not from America, like we did in the Keogh Gove case? There seemed to be a lot of notice taken, enough to remember and tell police on their questionnaire, of African Americans, so I'm wondering if it wasn't somewhere they generally resided. Not that I think it's necessarily pertinent to the case, just wondering why they'd take such notice since not all of them were mentioned alongside suspicious or strange behavior. Yeah, so here's a common misconception. A lot of people hear West Memphis, they think Memphis, they think Tennessee, and they they think, you know, an area that is, you know, country music and a lot of Caucasian people. But in fact, Memphis is is an area known for blues. Uh, which uh, you you might notice in the the music that Shane Yoder puts together, he tried to capture a little bit of that and kind of mix in some blues music into the music we use this season. In this particular area, in both Memphis, Tennessee, and West Memphis, Arkansas, which is just across the Mississippi River, African Americans are the majority of the population there. Uh, listener Don McElhaney uh, on this thread, I think, in the uh, podcast fan page, pulled up the census from the year two thousand for West Memphis, Arkansas. And at that point, that area was about 55% African-American. Uh, and I think it was about that. About half of the population was African-American. So that does speak to, it, it does make a difference. So if you're in an area that is predominantly white and you get a bunch of people saying, well, I saw strange black men in the neighborhood. Well, maybe it's just they saw black men in the neighborhood. But in this particular area, it's probably about 50-50 black and white. And so when they say there's a strange acting black man, it's not that the individual was black. It was that they were probably acting strange. So remember, we have just a couple of the reports on top of my head. We have uh, Dana Moore and Kim Williams. And I believe uh, I might have this name wrong, but I think Ben Crafton was with them, too. We saw three males coming out of the Robin Hood woods that afternoon, one white, two black. 
uh, and, and their acting strain, so to speak, was them talking to the 10-year-old Dana Moore and Kim Williams and offering them a shot, which, again, Dawn thought was talking about drugs. Uh, they may have been talking about alcohol, but that was the strange behavior there. Then we also have uh, reports of black males jumping a fence and running when police were there. Uh, another report of them running through the woods at the time, some of them following around children, things like that. So you got to take each individual report for what it is. But there were a lot of uh, notes in the door-to-door notes where people were describing African-American individuals, but they were also attaching that to strange behavior. Uh, but as far as the demographics, I think you're looking at about 50 to 55% African-American and the remaining percentage would be mixed between uh, Caucasian and Hispanic were the two that were mostly predominant, and then other races. All right, and Dan wants to know about the weather and wind speed and direction the day the boys went missing. And there's been a lot of confusion on this, so can you clear this up, Bob? All right, this is a good question because there's been a lot of discussion about this, and it's been confusing to everyone. So when looking for the historical weather data, myself and pretty much anybody else that wanted to know, Goes to the one place that we're all aware of online where you can find historical weather data, which is a website called Weather Underground. When we go to Weather Underground, we find that the high temperature on May 5th, 1993 was 73 degrees, and the minimum temperature was 59. They didn't have any information about wind speed or direction. So we've been working off the assumption that the high was 73 and the low was 59. But then in the police files, which can be found on the Callahan website under climatology, we found a report that was submitted during trial at State's Exhibit Number 122, and it's the Local Climatological Data Monthly Summary. Now, this isn't from West Memphis. It's actually Memphis, Tennessee. So there's a little bit of separation there. It's on the other side of the river, but you're still only talking maybe 10, 15 miles away. Now, on this report from May 5th, it says the maximum temperature was 86 degrees Fahrenheit, and the minimum temperature was 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a hell of a difference. We got one site that's current looking at historical data that says the high was 73. And then you have this printout from 1993 that says the high was 86. Now, this one does have the wind speed and direction. It says the average wind speed that day was 6.3 miles an hour. Uh, the peak gust was 17 miles an hour and the wind was out of the south. Uh, personally, I've been really confused about this for quite a while. Why the huge difference, 73 to 86 degrees? Well, I think just today we found the answer to our dilemma, and it comes in the second page of the local climatological data sheet that's found on the Callahan website. On page two of this document, it gives observations at three-hour intervals for every day. And so we have an entry for May 5th, where every three hours throughout that day, they record the temperature, wind speed, direction, and all that. Now, what we find here is there's two different columns for temperature. The first column says air temperature in degrees Fahrenheit. And as we go through the list in three-hour intervals, we've got 63, 62, 76, 83, 86, 82, 73, 71. Ergo, the highest temperature was 86. But then in the next column over, it reads wet bulb temperature degrees Fahrenheit. And these numbers say 60, 59, 66, 70, 68, 68, 67, 65. So there's a pretty big discrepancy here, and the question I had is, what is the wet bulb temperature compared to the air temperature? So I did a little bit of research, looked it up, and this is what wet bulb temperature is. Wet bulb temperature is largely determined by both actual air temperature and the amount of moisture in the air. 
And if you look up wet bulb temperature, it goes into a lot more detail than that. But basically, this is what it means. The wet bulb temperature is the actual temperature that you feel when you combine the air temperature with the moisture in the air. The moisture in the air affects the way we feel the temperature. It cools the air down. So the air temperature was 86. The wet bulb temperature was a high of 73. That's why the Weather Underground site says the high was 73 degrees. Because if you looked at a thermometer, that's what it would have read on May 5th, 1993. Even though the air temperature without the humidity would have been 86. So that's the best I can come up with that explains it. And it does fit the data on these sheets. That the the temperature, if you had a thermometer sitting out in West Memphis on that day, the high would be 73 and the low was 59. Okay, thanks for clearing that one up. Shalice writes, it has been said that we can assume that the boys were in the water before 8 o'clock p.m. because of the lack of mosquito bites on them. If the boys were deceased before the mosquitoes came out, but not necessarily inside the water, would mosquitoes still bite them? And if they did bite, would it even be noticeable, since the telltale raised red bumps are caused by our body's histamine reaction to the venom? This is a really good point, and she could be right here. Because, yeah, the bumps that we see are from your body reacting to the bites. But then again, remember, the cause of death is drowning. So until they got put into the water, they were still alive. And once they were submerged in the water, obviously, the mosquitoes couldn't bite them anymore after that. So I think that if they were bit by mosquitoes, we would see the marks because uh, they were, again, cause of death drowning, meaning they were alive until they went into the water, which means that their blood was pumping, attracting the mosquitoes and their body would react to the mosquito bites, causing the red bumps. Interesting point, though, and we'll get into this in greater detail later, but I was reading last night in an undated case summary note. It's just a long document I was just perusing through yesterday that a listener had pointed out to me. And in that note, it says that Stevie Branch, uh, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, there's two different documents, and one says Branch, one says Byers, but they say that there's a possibility that they had a hypodermic needle puncture wound. Uh, on either of them. However, it's not noted anywhere in the autopsy report. Uh, so we're going to look into that a little bit more, but uh, not really about mosquito bites, but just made me think when she was talking about the skin's reaction that I don't know what that means. I've never heard that before, but these reports do say that one of the boys may have had a hypodermic needle used on them. And uh, again, it wasn't pointed out in the autopsy, so I don't know what that means, but we'll see if we can get some more info on that as we move forward. Okay, and lastly, Nikki wants to know, she's still a little bit confused, and I know you want to keep the focus on the victims in this case, so can we give her a quick rundown on which boy is which? Yeah, and, and I know we've been over this a bunch of times, but you're, you're right, I want to make sure that, that we continue to shine the light back onto the victims here. So remember Michael Moore, he was the one wearing the Cub Scout uniform, his parents were Dana and Todd Moore, his sister was Dawn Moore, he lived right next to Weaver Elementary School, right across the street from him is Christopher Byers. Uh, Christopher's mother is Melissa Byers. His adopted father is John Mark Byers. And he had an older half-brother named Ryan Clark, who was 13 at the time. And then we have Stevie Branch. He's the little blonde boy that lived down the south end of the neighborhood, away from the other two at 1601 South McCulley. His mother is Pam Hobbs. His stepfather, who lived with them, is Terry Hobbs. And he had a younger sister, who was four years old at the time, named Amanda. Uh, and I don't know what all she wanted to know about as far as which one was which, but that is the description of all three of them. I do have a little bit more from that same summary that I was just talking about uh, where they get into victimology. 
And I, I didn't quite personally have the picture of Michael Moore that I that I that I had in my mind. Um, you know, we we had heard that Christopher Byers was hyperactive. His nickname was Worm. Uh, that he was on Ritalin. He had what we would call now ADHD. Uh, but Michael Moore actually had very similar issues. He had he struggled in school with behavior. It sounds like he was very hyperactive. He also was on the drug Ritalin. Uh, so that's just a little bit more with victimology uh, to paint a little clearer picture of Michael Moore. Uh, Stevie Branch was really kind of the the star student of the three. Uh, there's no indication that he was on any kind of medication or had hyperactivity or behavior issues. Um, he was an honor roll student. So the other two, both Michael Moore and Christopher Byers, both uh, had some hyperactivity issues, which is, you know, some of that is just, you know, they're little boys. That's how little boys are. But uh, just a little change to the victimology. Also, I want to point out, too, when I was doing a little further reading, I think in episode 501, I had said that um, Pam Hobbs picked Stevie Branch up from school that day and drove him home. She did, in fact, pick him up. But as it turns out, I was wrong about that. She actually walked Stevie Branch home. She walked home with him. Pam was not driving at the time. So I think I had read the report that she picked him up and I assumed in a car, but she just walked up to the school, picked him up and walked home with him that day. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's follow-up. Yeah, thank you, everybody. And that's going to do it for this year's Friday follow-ups. And and I want to thank everybody for all their engagement and support this whole this whole year. We began 2017 by finishing up with uh, the Edward Eights case, our season two case. Uh, we went from there into Jesse Eldridge's case, which was the murder of Keow Gove. Uh, we did the short mini season on George Powell. Uh, that was just six episodes, and then we began our West Memphis Three coverage. So those of you who've been around for the long haul, you've actually went through four different cases with us during the season, and I appreciate all of your support. And remember this Sunday's episode, episode 507, we're going to dig deep into all the different sightings of the three boys on May 5th, 1993, that afternoon. Uh, so have your notepads handy. That is going to be our last episode of 2017. So the follow-up for that won't be until January after we take two weeks off with no episode. So again, thank you all for all of your support. And again, if you want to help us out during this two-week period, you can rate and review us on iTunes. You can share the podcast with anybody you know, anybody that might be interested in the case. And if you want to contribute financially, you can do so at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. So thank you all in advance for all of your help. Make sure you tune into Sunday's episode, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks in our next Friday follow-up episode. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. One thing Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Stephanie McConnell, and Britta Bliss. And a big thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for completely redesigning our new TruthAndJusticePod.com website where you can find all case documents for each episode as we move along. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement support. You can send in emails to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. You can also always send us a voicemail to 269-224-2833. You can send in questions for the Friday follow-ups or any tips to that number. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. I won. <laughs> we harmonized for a minute there. I, I thought it was too funny. I just couldn't keep my focus. <laughs> I was just laughing. All right, let's get started. Uh, no, we started 18 minutes ago, maybe. All right, let's get started with these questions. Why don't you let me do my job? How about you say, I'm just let di- me do dis- my job. I'm disregarding your hostility right now. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get started with our listener questions. I don't want you to say get started at all. That's the thing. All right, let's get to our f***ing questions. You made the look at what you did. Can we calm down, Mike? I just talked about, I literally just talked about how we want truth and justice to be a happy space. <laughs> You're right. You know? I need to really pull it together. You just took us to a dark place. All right, let me start over. Okay. Sorry. No, no need to apologize. All right, let's get to our listener questions. Let me get started. The oppositional defiance disorder you have. That's what you have. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I've always had that. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life. <laughs> right. Use this brush to paint the window. No, thank you. I'm going to use this other piece of foam. It's in my DNA. I'll cut that started line out. You edit podcast with an edge of sketch just to show me. <laughs> Thanks, Becky. Why Why does that look like it says salted caramel? What? <laughs> what does it say? No, it says salted vanilla. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, sweetheart. Good. You like that? Yeah. That's a good latte. <laughs> Take your time. Enjoy. That is so good. Yeah. Um, can we get back to the show? <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about.